Hosting provided by Host Tornado. They offer website hosting packages, dedicated servers, and VPS solutions. HostT.net. Programming Throwdown, episode 41, Node.js. Take it away, Patrick. So recently, the FCC came out with their long-awaited net neutrality ruling, and uh, they've tried several times to effectively uh, get net neutrality to be able to be enforced and gotten, I think, uh, this is such a complicated topic. I feel like you need to be a lawyer to really understand it, or maybe just someone who knows more lawyeries than me. But uh, so the way I understand it is they tried several times to, to be able to basically enforce net neutrality uh, and got told by the courts they couldn't do it that way. And so their most recent attempt was to do it by saying that uh, broadband is essentially a utility and that therefore the SEC has the right to be able to regulate it. But of course, that this isn't this is interesting because some people are opposing the fact that the FCC is even getting involved at all. So people uh, in the tech industry generally support the idea that net neutrality is a good thing, but that uh, it may be bad to have the government somehow def- having to defend the rights of the internet in that way may just be asking for trouble. That uh, they'll start putting their hands into other things on the internet. Uh, and of course, uh, other people are complaining because of what they had to do by saying that broadband was a utility. Some people are complaining that's you know not well. I guess it's a that becomes a political right wing versus left wing complaint about that that's anti company or uh, yeah. So some some such so problem. I'm going to try to explain net neutrality and then you can correct me. So I think so net neutrality means so a neutral internet is one where so okay. Just step back. So the way the internet works, right? You say, I want to go to yahoo.com. And what happens is um, your machine, uh, so there's a bunch of machines that resolve yahoo.com to an IP address. So those are called uh, domain name service machines. So you contact one of these domain name service machines. There's typically one for your ISP. And you say, okay, what is the address for yahoo.com? And they give you a number. And then you start sending packets to that number. And each machine along the way kind of knows where that packet needs to go and also knows what machines it's connected to and tries to get the packet a little bit closer to its destination. And so there's all of these hops where you're bouncing from one machine to the other until finally you reach yahoo.com, one of their front-end machines. And then they, you know, fill that packet. They, they create their own packet, which has the yahoo.com uh, site on it, like a bunch of packets which have that site on it. And then they send those packets back to you. But along the way, it bounces through all these machines. And a neutral internet is one where all those machines along the way including your ISP, um, just forward the packets without any discrimination. Um, so a not like a net like if we didn't have net neutrality, then what they could do is they could say, oh, you know, here's a packet containing Netflix movie, like a piece of a Netflix movie. So I'm going to charge Patrick, you know, a, a fraction of a cent for this packet. But then if the packet doesn't have a Netflix movie, if it has something else, maybe it's free. Um, did I, does that kind of explain it or? Yeah. I mean, this is where it begins that I, the mishmash of not understanding the politics of it. And then the, uh, you know, the peering arrangements is another thing that comes into play here that, uh, certain website, certain computers send a lot of traffic and others receive it or, you know, source it or sync it, I guess is the equivalent. Mm -hmm. Like Google doesn't generate a lot of traffic but it receives a lot of traffic. Wait, really? Wait, isn't it the other way around? Well, uh, if you, th- so the, like who's requesting it? Like Google.com doesn't ask for a lot of traffic. Like it doesn't uh, cause traffic to be generated. It's sending lots of packets in reply. Like you go to YouTube, right? So if I go to YouTube, I send a small amount of packets, but I'm the one 
that is initiating youtube isn't sending me stuff without me asking oh but i, I see, send I youtube see. stuff without it asking gotcha i see so you ask youtube for information and then they just like fill you full of information so yeah i send a small amount of data and they send a large amount of data back but Got it you. matters because the you know who like essentially they're acting in response to a request from me got it got it so there's something there too and like so my isp has to uh you know bring in a lot of data and doesn't send out much data right but right. the data it does send out is the cause for all the data that's coming back right that makes sense yeah yeah so i mean you have to do a search to get a result or you have to you know, click play on a video to start getting the video. So it's always your, um, yeah, the causal is nature is always you, but then the effect is that Google or YouTube or whoever just dumps a bunch of data on you. Um, yeah, but yeah. And so then the belief is that, you know, Google slash YouTube or Facebook or insert any large website should pay because they don't, you know, it's their, their traffic isn't symmetrical, right? Like it, because of this asymmetry that there's some there's something there and they're not sharing their fair burden of something versus a isp probably also has people who host servers there and so they actually are sending out traffic as like they are doing both ways yeah so right. their traffic is more balanced yeah i mean part of it is you know to argue to play devil's advocate i mean people who argue against net neutrality they say that basically yeah there's some people who consume yeah, I think Netflix consumes like a third of the internet or something like that during peak hours. And so they have no, Netflix has no incentive to, uh, you know, be judicious and responsible with their bandwidth because it's, excuse me, because it's basically free. I mean, they pay, you know, they might pay their ISP to, you know, push out all of that traffic and have the infrastructure. But then all of those hops in between, they're just kind of freeloading in a sense. And so there's this idea that kind of the people who are using all of this traffic and requiring all of this infrastructure should also be financially responsible for it. And that was kind of the, that's the anti-net neutrality argument. The net neutrality argument is like, this is very complicated and difficult to enforce. And I mean, if there's no, a No, I think the net, net neutrality is slightly more subtle is that not that Netflix should be more or less responsible, but that it doesn't matter if you're Netflix, uh, Facebook, or a small startup, that they should all pay the same rates. Right, that's right, yeah. Right, so, so you may pay more, Netflix will pay a lot more than a tiny startup, but the amount they pay divided by the amount of traffic is the same. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Sorry, sorry, it's like a subtle nuance, but it matters. Yeah, that makes sense. You're right. Because, yeah, you're right. If, if you, it's like a toll road, right? Like if you have more vehicles in your fleet going on that toll road, you're naturally going to pay more. Um, but, uh, but everyone gets charged. But you can't say, amount. oh, your truck is a Walmart truck and I don't like Walmart or Walmart, you know, trucks are worse for my business in some other way. And so I want to discriminate against Walmart trucks and make them pay twice as much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we both kind of, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of for net neutrality. I never really understood the idea of charging different people different amounts, but uh, I also haven't been keeping too up to date with it, so. Yeah, my opinion is hard because it's, yes, the idea is good. I want the internet to be neutral, but like, how do you enforce it? Who enforces it? Yeah, right. This becomes where the pro where it gets sticky. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, we, we have a correction from last episode, episode 40. Uh, and this is by Andy. Andy wrote in to us to say that we've made a mistake. No. Uh, I was giving you time to recover from passing out. First um, time ever. Uh, I'm, okay. Yes. First time <laughs> ever. Uh, so we were, we were ranting about pre versus post increment. And we weren't being very careful, or I wasn't at least, being very careful in how I was stating it and saying that it kind of doesn't make a difference and how I prefer doing post increment in like a for loop, for instance, because that's the way I was taught. Um, and it does actually matter a lot. Uh, and especially in the case uh, where you have um, like classes in C++, not basic uh, native data types, 
because doing the post increment requires a copy operator because it needs to invoke, use the before value and the after value. Um, so it needs two copies of the object, which does add overhead. And so you have to be careful uh, when you're using post increment that you really need it and that there is could potentially be a non-trivial cost to it. Yeah, especially with, with uh, iterators. Yeah, I mean, if you're using it with an int, the compiler will probably just optimize it for you. But Yeah, uh, that was my, well, oh, integral type. There we go. That was the word I was, I'm yeah, was on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, primitive type or integral type. A primitive type. integral type, right? Something that is kind of native. Like, I don't, I don't know that it makes a big difference. But to be fair, it's better to adopt a habit that's good for everything than try to remember the nuances. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense. So I stand corrected. <laughs> All right. Should have been more specific. First time ever. We can make a mistake once. Um, news. So this is a total cop-out news, but uh, I'm really proud of this, excited about it. But uh, I made a wiki, a wiki engine. Um, so basically, you know, there's Wikipedia. Uh, sorry, they're not Wikipedia. There's Media Wiki, <laughs> which Wikipedia is based on. There's Twiki, and uh, there's a couple others that kind of dominate the wiki engine market or space, uh, mindshare, if you will. Um, and these are good, especially for like public environments. Um, but they don't really, they never really worked well for corporate environments. Um, you'd always see people like try to have a meeting uh, on Wikipedia, uh, like try not Wikipedia, but try to have like a, like meeting notes in a wiki. And then, you know, two people can't edit it at the same time. Uh, most of them don't allow that, like collaborative editing. Um, also, it's too hard. Like if you see a typo in a wiki, like in your your internal wiki, it's such a huge pain in the butt. You have to like click edit. You have to go find the typo in the markup language, correct it, then click save. And then each time it's like a page page load, so it's maybe like five seconds. So it takes probably thirty seconds to fix a typo in a normal wiki. And so what ends up happening is like as code is evolving and processes are changing quickly, people are just not keeping the wiki up to date. So I created a wiki where it's very simple to update and uh, it's collaborative. So um, it's uh, Node.js and uh, JavaScript on the browser. Gonna be and, talking uh, about this. I know, spoiler. And uh, MongoDB for the database. So if you can get MongoDB and Node.js running, you're good to go. And... Uh, and everyone on Twitch saw that Angry YOLO is following me on Twitch. Thank you, Angry YOLO, for the follow. Anyway, so uh, if you have all of that, it's not too bad. You can get it set up on Heroku or something pretty easily. And uh, you can get this wiki up and running. It's pretty cool. Uh, when you go into edit mode, it turns into like this Google Doc thing where like several people can edit at the same time. So if you have like a meeting, um, one person can project the wiki and everyone else could be editing the wiki and kind of filling things in or making corrections, and it just kind of naturally works. Um, then it's also permanent, has a full text search and things like that. So uh, I think it's pretty cool. Uh, to give it a shot, let me know what you think. If you uh, if you hate your wiki at your company or you haven't started one yet, try this one. And uh, yeah, let me know how it goes. Very nice. Uh, yeah. I, I I really want to run this and try this, but. Yeah, uh, we have a, a <laughs> other things we use, and so I'm not sure it'll go over that well at my company. So I'll say I'll do it in my spare time. Yeah, you could but always just ping, exist, so. ping somebody and say, uh, you can run the demo. I'll actually change the link. You need it as a, this is, we need to talk about software as a service. You need to offer this as a service. Uh, I could totally do that. But I don't know. The thing is, is like most, most companies are kind of private about their data. Yeah. So... Uh, but uh, but yeah, check this out. Uh, it's a little demo, and uh, you can go and uh, edit it, and you know. And I have no friends, so I wouldn't ever be able to see anyone editing it with me. <laughs> All right, I'm just being sad. Okay, my link of the week, or link of the week. Oh man, my link to talk about is the 8cc small compi C compiler. So I ran across this the other day in a news story. And that was interesting because I'm constantly wanting to learn more about kind of compilers and compiler theory. It's one of those things I think uh, everyone, I don't know, maybe not everyone, but I feel like many people in computer science or doing software engineering get interested in compilers at some level. But everyone mm -hmm. kind of just has this 
believe and I, to be honest i've never looked at the gcc code so i have no idea how complex it is but i've heard it's really complex and i just assume it must be really complex yeah um, same here so i but i've never to be fair i've never looked at it so i don't know that's a bad assumption it's um, got to be just a total nightmare though <laughs> i've heard that i heard that but i i you know i've never looked so i can't say uh, and then there's things like clang llvm which are you know part of uh, their goal is to kind of clean that up, right? Anyway, right. leave all that aside. 8CC is just a, a compiler for the C language, trying to support all of the modern C11 language features, um, but it also has a goal to be very readable and simple and small. Um, so I don't think they're trying to be the most optimal one, but they are trying to be uh, complete, like not implement a C subset, but actually implement all of the C language. Um, and so I was reading through a little bits of the code just to check out, and I have it on my, you know, infinite to-do list to like go through this and kind of really like read through a lot of it but i, I you know the parts i read through were like oh i know what this is doing um wow, but i need cool. to kind of get more into the like understanding how it's hooked up and you know how it flows and you know so here's something parsing an abstract abstract syntax tree node okay i can follow kind of what it's doing but how is the tree built where does it go to you know those kind of stuff that i didn't get into but if you're interested i would check it out um and they have some links to other projects that are similar that may be of use as well yeah, this would be totally awesome. I've always wanted to do uh, things like, uh, oh, I had this one crazy idea. Oh, yeah, like if you could turn C code. There was this project, GCC XML, that turned C into XML so that you could do crazy things like like, uh, like kind of automatically delete all the comments and things like that. Oh. And... Uh, yeah, this would be good to read just to see if you could do like kind of these front end things. Or like you want to add that one feature to see that no one will let you do, no one ever seems to want to support. Yeah, yeah. Cool, man. It's awesome. All right, my news is uh, our link, I guess, is to 50 totally free lessons in graphic design theory. Is this so, BuzzFeed? Oh, no. Uh, no. So I'm totally <laughs> interested in graphic design i've been doing a lot of drawing in my spare time um and i've been really interested in sort of like the psychology behind it like there's all these rules you know like the don't put something in the middle of the page uh you know the golden rule it's like the two-thirds rule all these things but uh you know i wanted to see something like a little bit more formal that tries to like codify them or at least explain like the intuitions behind them and things like that and so, uh, yeah, I've been going through a bunch of these and some other resources and uh, uh, trying to do a lot of drawing and things like that. And this, this was one of the ones I found particularly useful. So uh, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, if you're building a website, drawing a picture, uh, any of that kind of stuff, this, this, this will help. It's very broad uh, kind of topic in uh, graphic design. So check it out. I have comments about this, but I'm going to save them for later. Okay. Because <laughs> I think we'll talk more about this topic soon. Really? Okay. Do you, okay, never mind. All right. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, my next link is uh, OpenGL, From Zero to Hero. Sounds like something I need to read. Um, and this is, Are you uh, doing OpenGL? Like, is, is that a uh, thing of yours now? No. Oh, okay. You just want to read it because it's cool? Yeah. I don't know. It, it's game graphics. I don't know. Always, it's always interesting to me. I do yeah, do graphic stuff sometimes. Uh, I wonder maybe. how many people uh, got into computer science to make video games. I, I bet it's probably 50%. <laughs> I have very low desire to make a full-fledged video game, but I have more like demo scene inclinations. Where yeah, I want to like here. make like demo of like some cool thing and just like, you know, just play around like toy programs, but yep. with graphics. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't want to make the content, but I just want, same as you, I just want to make something that's kind of cool. But yeah, I don't want to spend the time like writing the story and all that stuff. Yeah, that's for people who have more time than I have. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's or it's their yeah. job. Uh, but this is a series of tutorials um, that it, it looks like there's going to be more. But even the parts they have now take you from the parts I always find really difficult, like getting OpenGL set up or even installed, in this case, in like Visual Studio even, um, which can sometimes be harrowing experience. Um, yeah to how do you draw a triangle, you know, shading the triangle. And then it goes into uh, basic parts of a game engine and like, you know, shaders and scene managing and all these things and how they fit in. Uh, and I didn't go through the whole tutorial, but the parts I clicked through like seemed really interesting and on point. And so if you're interested in it, check it out. Um, 
And like I said, I, this is probably most people because I think a lot of people have this thing in the back of their head that one day they're going to make some awesome video game or OpenGL 3D thing. Cool, man. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, now there's like uh, a ton of these. Well, we talked about Unity actually in that's the last right. show. That's right. Yeah, we did. But, uh, but still like, you know, a lot of the, if you want to do something kind of really out there and like the coolest, you know, one man video games or like, you know, indie video games are the ones that have some crazy kind of mechanic that's just very hard to get right with one of these high level things. Like Minecraft, for example, you can't write Minecraft in Unity. You have to do something kind of low level, right? And so uh, it's really important to know OpenGL and the fundamentals. Yeah, for me, it's more like to, and it sounds, I guess it's kind of weird. Maybe it's, I don't know what, how you phrase that, but uh, the fact that, okay, you go to some tutorial, like how to make an Android app, but then they actually don't do any of the interesting parts. It's just like you take some framework and then you like edit some XML and then like, okay, you have a Android app with a button. Okay, but like, <laughs> that's not what I wanted to learn. Like I wanted to do something, you know, like I want a framework to get me almost there, but then I can do the interesting part. So like for me, you know, getting something like Unity, if you're going to actually try to make a game, is is really good. But if you're just trying to like play around, uh, sometimes it hides what maybe the parts that are interesting to you. And in yeah, my case, right. that you know, that would be kind of the lower level stuff of you know actually rendering the graphics. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But maybe I'm a strange kind of weird person. So. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, that's a given. But okay. given all, all right, of that, good. the other stuff you said makes sense. Yes. <laughs> Time for book of the show. Boo! Book of the show. My book of the show is "You Can Draw in Thirty Days: The Fun, Easy Way to Learn to Draw in One Month or Less." Um, so I have to confess, I haven't read this yet, but I have ordered it. Um, uh, I love drawing, but uh, I'm not great at it. I'm good at doing like, I'm I'm good at being kind of a perfectionist in the sense of like, like making sure like you know, like spending a lot of time on it until it kind of looks good. But then like, I feel like the people who are really good at drawing are the ones who can like, they have a certain tolerance for quality. And then within that tolerance, they can just generate a lot. Like for example, it's the same as writing code, right? Like the code that I write on a day-to-day basis, like might not be the cleanest code ever. I mean, I'm sure if I spent more time, I could write better, like cleaner code but I can write a lot of it in a day. Like I have like sort of a well-oiled machine uh, where I just like can kind of churn out a bunch of code. Um, and so that's what a good artist can do. A good artist, you know, might not like, might not be as perfect as, as, as he wants or as that as he can be, but he can get 90% of the way there in, you know, one tenth of the time that it takes me to get, to get there, right. To get, to get done. So, uh, yeah, so I'm trying to read through these books, especially the ones on kind of doing things quickly. And, uh, uh, yeah, I'll let you guys know how this goes. But, uh, um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to getting in and taking a look through. So I'm a little up on you. I'm like seven days into this book. Uh, you really? You actually have this book? Yes. Um, <laughs> so this is what I was saying. I was going to talk about this later, and you just had this, like, blank sound and i was yeah, like I okay just, well what are the odds that we both have the same book <laughs> um so so my so everything you're describing uh, except for the fact that i can't draw even if i take a long time um <laughs> so i'm just terrible at it so i learned i got the roundabout story is there's this thing called urban sketching i don't know if you ever checked this out there's yeah. a website urban sketchers if you search it and they have like a very particular art style which is exactly describing is exactly described by the words you were using where the idea of urban sketching is you know, you're out in the world, like you're sitting on a bench, you're in a Starbucks, and you're drawing fast. You're drawing just something that you're seeing. Uh, and you can't take forever. You can't be a perfectionist. You're not making a gallery piece. You're making something very loose. But oh, I'm just cool. something... So the style I've learned is kind of called like the ink and wash style. So you kind of like draw with a pen, and then they'd use some splatterings of color from watercolor. And this is uh, kind of like a very specific style that they're, they they're tend to be very similar, a lot of them. Wow, and, uh, this is cool. That, this is like got me into, I wanted to do this. I didn't know why, but like that style just stuck with me and like this quick, loose drawing yeah, for fun. Yeah, great. Uh, and so I got in a series of weird tangents. Uh, so I now actually, I, I kind of gave up the drawing a little, except then I've come back to it because uh, I actually got into watercolor painting. And so now I've been doing watercolor painting for about uh, two or three weeks now. And cool. uh, 
um, it's been really interesting. And so I've learned to need to draw again because you need to draw to be able to paint. So blah, blah, blah. So I'm back and, and, and working on drawing again. And I hadn't painted since like elementary school. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know however many years that is, many years. And uh, so I got stuff like just doing it. And it was actually like, wow, this is really like relaxing. I don't know what about so different than coding it is, but I was really, really been enjoying it. So, so like, uh, I never really thought to do watercolor. Like I have, uh, I have pencil crayons and then I have, you know, like drafting pencils. Mm-hmm. But uh, like, what made you think to do watercolor? Specifically the urban sketching stuff. Oh, so these are all watercolor you're saying? So the color you see there is almost universally watercolor, yeah. Oh, and then they add the, they do pencil drawing on top of it. No, no, well, so there's two ways. One is like you spill some color across the page and then you just draw something on top of it for yeah. like effect. But then others are where you draw a sketch uh, in pencil or pen and then you kind of just like loosely color parts of it in watercolor. Oh, I see. Um, and the reason watercolor there is because it dries much faster than like all the, a lot of the other kind of paints and it's much more portable because you can have the dried pucks and a little you know cup of water and you can be able to paint yeah yeah um, oh that's awesome yeah so now i've been doing like a little bit of watercolor stuff uh i won't say i'm great but i'm doing better than i thought i would be able to i can paint things that you can recognize wow that's awesome and so that's made me happy. So, and there's turns out there's tons and tons of videos on YouTube about how to do like any of this kind of stuff. So, and I find it easier than drawing with a pencil because I feel like by nature, the painting and specifically watercolor is very loose in nature. So you can paint precisely, but it wants to kind of run all over the page. And so yeah, it forces right. you to be more interpretive, which is something that I don't do by nature. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's, that's my like flaw too, is like if, if something doesn't look realistic like if it if it doesn't match and i like have to fix it and so certain things like which are kind of there's certain things that are just always kind of drawn comically like for example like the fur of a tiger like the the outside like the the border between a tiger and whatever's behind the tiger like to actually draw that correctly is just insanely hard uh but you know, so like to, to draw it the way that you would see it, like the iconic drawing of a tiger um, is like kind of more abstract. And I think that's where I have the most trouble. I, yeah. To your point earlier, I don't know if you guys check out anyone, guys or gals listening, check out like this urban sketching. To me, what you were saying earlier about kind of psychological almost, how that you can recognize something to be a person when it's almost just like a couple loop squiggles and like, hashy lines and a little bit of paint and you'll be like yeah, oh right. like here there's a picture i'm looking right now like a picture of a marching band and it's like i can tell this is like a marching band and like but like there's so little detail here it, it's kind of crazy that i'm able to tell that that's what yeah. this is and then yeah, i can actually tell right this now. is almost looks like a saint patrick's day whatever like it, but i don't know why i'm able to tell that like yeah it's just mind-boggling so yeah uh, yeah Learn cool, to draw. Man. Yeah, but the, I, I'm, I did enjoy the book. I like, kind of put it back down because I started doing the watercoloring stuff. But uh, yeah, I was enjoying it so far. So I, I'll recommend it. Cool. But you have to stick with it. It's practice. People just think like I'm going to sit down and just draw, but that doesn't happen. Like it, it's just very hard for your, even if you know in your head what you want to draw, your hand won't be able to do it initially. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So it takes more practice and I, everybody just chalks it up to talent. <laughs> I did too. And so, yeah, my book is completely unrelated. It's a science fiction. Go surprise. Patrick's nice. recommending a science fiction book. <laughs> wow. I didn't know you read science fiction. <laughs> I only talk about a science fiction book or fantasy every single episode. This one is a book that was released last fall, Abyss Beyond Dreams. This is uh, Peter F. Hamilton's newest entry in the Commonwealth saga, of which I believe there are five or six books now. Um, and, uh, I guess this would be like the seventh. Uh, and I really enjoy his style. I was really hoping this book was going to have, uh, so he writes about kind of crazy future science and it's, I guess, considered hard sci-fi and a lot about how humans modify themselves in the future. Uh, and there is a good amount of it in here, but not as much as I was hoping, but it's still a really good story. I, I really enjoyed it. So I would recommend that Abyss Beyond Dreams. Uh, or any of Peter F. Hamilton's Commonwealth Saga books. Uh, I don't know that you really... Th- there's uh, uh, two books, and then a trilogy, and now this one, which is set in between the previous. So I wouldn't read the, any in the sets out of order, but I think you can read any of the sets in either in any order. 
Cool, Did man. Did that make sense? That was confusing. Anyways, no, check no, it, it totally out. made sense. And so, uh, on a, oh, go ahead. Oh, no. Go, I, I was just going to say. On a, on a related <laughs> note of books, Terry Pratchett just passed away like a week ago. Um, yeah. And so, he had uh, Alzheimer's um, and for, for a while, and so he was kind of fading, but... Uh, um, but yeah, he passed away about a week ago, and uh, yeah, the world will miss Terry Pratchett. Discworld series, uh, we've had at least one, I know, or maybe two um, books. That's books of the show, which yeah, are books he yeah. wrote, among other um, stuff. There was this pretty epic image of, that someone hand-drew of him shaking hands with death. Uh, I can't seem to find it, though. Yes, which is one of the characters in his Discworld series. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so he's shaking hands with uh, yeah one of his most famous characters. Yep. Let me see if I can pull it up. I think also his, I believe it's his, I want to say his daughter, uh, tw- when she tweeted that he died, uh, also made a reference to his death character. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. So, um, Anyways. I was going to say, the secret to me being able to listen to this, uh, Bis Beyond Dreams is another uh, quite long science fiction book, as many of mine are, because I have a, quite a long commute. Uh, and the way I'm able to do that is by listening to audiobooks. And this week, we have to announcement that we now have Audible as one of our sponsors of the show. That's so, right. Uh, you can go to audibletrial.com slash throwdown. Uh, and they have an offer where you can get a free month, which is Audible Works. Um, you can either just buy the audiobooks, um, kind of like for a flat fee, or you can pay a subscription per month. I believe it's $15. And then you're able to download one book a month, essentially. Uh, and they have plans that have more books a month. And then you can keep them even if you cancel your subscription. So what I do is I have a subscription for a little while, uh, you know, get a couple books built up and then I cancel my subscription and then when I make it through those books I get it again because the subscription works out to be cheaper than uh, just buying them directly off of their thing and they also oh, run great sales so while so you're as long your as you're disciplined to uh, to get a book every month then you can just continue to build up a queue of books yeah. oh and your credit you get a credit and a credit is good for a book and the credits don't expire until you cancel so you can let them build up and then like oh. use them all at once and then cancel Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. So they're pretty good about that. Um, I've actually been pleased. And then I, I'm able to listen to it um, for however long, you know, after I've canceled. And then while you have the subscription, they also run sales, which are even cheaper. Or they also run deals where if you buy the Kindle version of the book and the Audible version of the book, sometimes it's cheaper than just buying the Audible version of the book. Oh. Uh, and so I do that sometimes. So you can get uh, a lot of good listening material slash reading material. Um for a pretty decent price. I feel like it's a good deal. And so I'm glad that we can uh, now have them on our show. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, if you, uh, if you use the link that we'll provide in the uh, blog, then, uh, then that helps us out. So we appreciate yeah, it. Help out the show and check it out. And if you're always saying, man, I really wish I had more time to read uh, and you're in your car or in a long commute, you first you can listen to this podcast and then you can listen to it. <laughs> That's <work>. right. <laughs> oh, man, are we, are we uh, encouraging our competition? <laughs> so I, I listen to both podcasts and uh, science fiction books. So, Yeah, yeah, there's definitely enough time for that. I, I do the same thing. I listen to, uh, I listen, well, I listen to just podcasts, but I have like a ton of podcasts, like five different podcasts. So. Only five? Wow, I've, uh, my commute wow, is more much, than five much longer than yours. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, cool. So to the tools of the show my tool of the show is jacoco which is a java code coverage library so what this means you integrate it into your test environment well specifically integrate into your build system so if you're using you know maven or ant or gradle or any of these things you uh, integrate jacoco into one of those and then whenever you run your tests this will actually tell you what lines of code um, are covered in your unit tests and which ones aren't. And so uh, it's pretty cool. Like it'll give you high level overview, like you know, 6% or 70% of your project is, is uh, unit tested. Only 70% of the lines. Boo. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but then uh, you, know, you can drill in and say, oh, I totally missed this class. You can, you know, exclude some classes like if it's just like a main loop or something 
like void main or whatever, just in its own class. You don't want to unit test it. So it has a bunch of options like that. Um, it's pretty slick. Um, I've been using it for not too long, just a week or so, but uh, but it's pretty cool. And uh, it really kind of helps you to reduce the entropy. Like, like if there's some code that's not unit tested, maybe it doesn't need to be there, right? And so uh, it kind of can really help improve the uh, code quality. What do you have as your code coverage target? Uh, I don't know yet. <laughs> so so uh, I ran this. So basically what happened is we had this kind of, I don't want to use the word sprint because that reminds me of agile and all that, those things that I kind of hate. But uh, <laughs> but uh, we had just we had just sort of a rush where we had a deadline that we were rushing to meet, and uh, we were able to meet the deadline. But I mean, we were here at the eleventh hour, just banging out a ton of code, um, and so uh, so the code coverage is really bad, uh, really really bad. In fact, uh, we hadn't even started writing unit tests until this week, um, so the code coverage was zero. Nice. Um, so. So I have to, you know, I don't really have a set target, like a certain percent. It's more just like uh, I want us to write unit tests until until things look good, um, you know, until like we're happy with it. And then I'll try to figure out. You know, it's hard for me to have a target when I've never really done this before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, just some, some teams have like a, you know, like 90% is the... Uh, desired goal or 100% which can be very difficult yeah I mean I'm assuming if your goal is 100% then you're excluding like void main or whatever I mean I mean you could test it but at that point you're just kind of wasting time right yeah I mean but you could get to essentially 99.99999% yeah right Uh, and then that doesn't even get into talking about branch coverage yeah yeah that's right which is not just every line of code, but each path. So if there's multiple ways to get into a if statement, you exercise all the permutations. Yep, yep. Yeah, that's much, much harder. Yeah, that's brutal, man. Okay, um, my tool of the show is relatively limited, but I, I've been using a lot and thinking about it. Uh, anyways, and that's Think or Swim. So Think or Swim used to be a, uh, a, a stock platform that was its own uh, investment company, but now it's part of a brokerage called TD Ameritrade, and it's one of the options for interfacing with it. And so I have some stock investments uh, with TD Ameritrade, and I've been using Thinkorswim. Um, but I really want to just use an opportunity. First of all, say I actually do like the interface, and I almost exclusively do it from the phone. So I don't do tons of uh, like really stock trading. It's more just investing. Um, but I do it like exclusively from my phone and my tablet. I don't go on the website except to create the account. Uh, uh, like I manage everything from like on the go. Whenever I have a, you know, like some money gets auto deposited and I want to invest it in a, you know, indexed ETF or whatever, I just handle it, you know, wherever I am. And I just think it's kind of crazy to think that would have been me phoning some guy sitting behind a desk to execute an order, not even what, like five years ago. And now I just yeah, like, right. do it from like a tablet or my mobile phone. The trade prices are reasonable. Um, and there's ways to get even better deals than what they have posted. Not me endorsing uh, TD Ameritrade, but just saying. Wait, so what are the, what, what are the fees? Um, it slips my mind now. I think it's $5 for a stock trade. Oh, that that's better is- than E-Trade. E-Trade's $10. So I have like a special, like there's like, oh. like I said, if you shop around, there's like other ways, like referral links basically where. Gotcha. You'll uh, have to refer me, hook me okay. up. <laughs> so, so yeah, so like I'm not specifically like far be it from me to uh, give investment advice, although I'll tell you my opinions. Oh I no, give we will never, opinions. we will, uh, yeah, let's not get in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but um I'm just saying, like, for me, it's just about that this specific one, Think or Swim, I really like the way it's designed and the way it operates. And uh, also, I think it's just crazy that we can do this now, that, like, I don't have to yeah. even be on my laptop or yet much less the phone, which I hate, uh, calling people. Um, and oh, so yeah. instead, instead now I just amazing. Like, you can just, oh, you can just, like, take your phone out of your pocket and say, oh, look, I think this looks pretty interesting. You know, I'm sitting here, like, you know, waiting for... Uh, doctor's appointment or something and you just have some time to uh study your financial situation and yeah and it really takes away like wild. the like procrastination ability because it's yeah, like oh right. 
well, this weekend I'll get on and I'll, oh, but the market's closed. I'll wait till I'll set up, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You just do it. Uh, so it's $7 is my rate for flat stock. Tax. Oh, okay. Yeah, you'll have to uh, add me as okay. a friend or do whatever. Oh, okay, all right, all right. I, I like how they're, uh, they're, one of their, you know, bullet points here is they add zing to my ding ding. <laughs> what? Oh, bec- I think that's because it's the noise it makes when you execute a trade. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I mean, who doesn't want that? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, so you, the only thing you got to be careful with all these things is there's uh, incentive to try to make you trade more. And I'm a firm believer that I think trading more just gets you into more trouble. Oh, yeah, don't, yeah, yeah. Can you do like, uh, can you schedule things in advance? So you can set like a good to cancel order. So yeah, so like a good to cancel limit order. Like I want to buy tesla at this amount or this etf at this amount and i want it to be good until i cancel it well can you do like like say i want to buy tesla you know the 15th of every month oh like I don't that know. kind of stuff i've i haven't tried doing that it's possible there's a lot of really like crazy stuff in the program so oh, okay uh so yeah more not an endorsement to, to trade or not yeah, to you trade, heard but, it from us buy yeah. tesla no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> don't do Stop. that don't do that but the amazing <laughs> moving of uh, also, the other one a lot of people use. What is that called? Uh, oh, why is the name skip? Interactive brokers. Interactive brokers is another one people recommend a lot. That's I, I guess relatively low cost, um, okay. and and they also have a, a mobile one that I've used. And what I was gonna say, Thinkorswim also even if you don't open an account, they have like the paper trading one. And if you're just into like stock trade, like uh, checking stock charts and uh, stock prices, I think it's twenty minute delayed if you don't have an account. But uh, for most people, that shouldn't be a big problem. I don't. Right. Anyways, and so that uh, just even using it to check stock prices and stuff, I find it to be a useful application. Cool. So it works on the phone or the iPad or both. Or I don't know if it's on Android, but it, for sure I have it on my iPhone and my iPad, and they're both beautiful cool. and nice, and I like them. Very cool. So that was way too many caveats for a tool of the show. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. Time for Node.js. Node.js. So. Um yeah, so Node.js is pretty cool. So we talked about Node.js very briefly when we covered JavaScript a long time ago. I don't remember what episode that was. But uh, at the time, you know, to confess, neither of us had ever, you know, written any you know big projects or anything like that in Node. Um, and since then, you know, Node has come a long way. We've come a long way in terms of what we code uh, day to day. And uh, and so we have a lot more to say about Node.js. It's pretty cool. Um, the basic premise by Node.js is that uh, you know JavaScript is the language of the browser. So if you want to you know do something interactive on the browser, you're almost certainly going to have to write it in JavaScript. And Node.js is a JavaScript uh, you know based engine for uh, desktops. And so it's kind of nice because you can stay to just one language. And we'll talk about that more later, why that, why that's convenient. Yeah, so to, to give the one-line summary, because sometimes it's frustrating to figure out what something really does, this is basically to allow you to run JavaScript not in your browser. That's right. It's just think of it as like a command-line JavaScript engine, right? Yes. It took me a while to actually figure out what it was supposed to be. <laughs> nice. Not, not for this episode, but when I first heard about it. Yeah, right, right. Um, do you want to cover some of the history? Sure. So uh, in th- Node.js, like we said, is a, is a JavaScript uh, engine to run on a PC outside of a browser. And uh, the thing that led to its development was that in 2008, uh, Google released the V8 JavaScript engine, which is what they use for executing JavaScript inside of Google Chrome. But they released mm-hmm. it as a standalone, so you could kind of compile JavaScript and run it. And in 2009... Um, Ryan Dahl working at Joint, which is a cloud services company. Um, yep. And so they he released this thing called Node.js onto the scene, which was uh, essentially kind of like a framework, uh, encapsulation of V8 inside of it in a, a platform to allow you to even more easily run essentially JavaScript programs as if they were almost native executables, as it were. Yeah, like Have what Node.js kind of does set. is it connects, because you know, like JavaScript ran on the command line with the V8, but it didn't have access to the OS. Like someone had to go in and write the read a file function or the send a byte over the network 
you know, fun well, actually, I guess that one's in JavaScript, but like, but like the read a file function or the control your mouse function or the read from the keyboard function, like these low level, you know, C operating system functions, someone had to connect them to the JavaScript engine. And that's what Ryan Dahl did with Node. Yeah, so uh, some of the pros. So one pretty cool thing about this is uh, it's, it's all JavaScript, which is pretty cool. JavaScript is weakly typed, if you remember from the episode. So what that means is um, the advantage of that is basically in JavaScript, everything is either a dictionary or an array or, or a primitive, like a string or a number. So everything's a bunch of dictionaries and arrays. Um, you, know, you have dictionaries of arrays, so on and so forth. Um, and then that maps very well to JSON, which is not a coincidence. It's called JavaScript object notation. And so JSON is a, you can think of it as like a serialized form of a JavaScript object. So you can take some JavaScript object, maybe it's a dictionary and, you know, it has a key called user and the values, someone's name, and then it has a key called friends and the values some list of, of, of friends' names, right? And you can have this JavaScript object and say, you know, uh, you know user.name, print user.name, print user.friends. And then you can say, hey, take this object and turn it into a JSON string. Uh, once it's a string, you can you know, send it across the network, you can serialize it to disk, you can do whatever you want. And then at any point you can say json.parse and it turns your string back into a JavaScript object where you can like run functions on it and stuff like that. So this is pretty cool, right? Because you see where this is going. Like you could be on the browser writing with your JavaScript and you can say, hey, take these objects and turn them into strings, then send them to the server. The server's running Node.js. It says, hey, take these strings, turn them back into objects, and then just start accessing them. Just like, you know, keep resume where I left off. Um, um, doing the server side. Um, so this is especially useful for validation, right? So right now, a lot of people don't know this, but if you go in your browser and like you try to log into your bank or something and you, you don't put a password, you just hit enter um, or you put the wrong password, uh, like your bank, like, or if you put a, if you put no password, it won't even let you log in. Like before you even go to click the login button, like the password box will turn red. Uh, or maybe like right when you click immediately it'll turn red and your browser will just tell you, look dude, you didn't put a password. This isn't gonna work, right? Um, and so, or you know, if you, if you try to sign up on a website and it says put in your email address and you put A and you hit enter, or even before you hit enter, it might say, look, that's not, A is not an email address, it's not gonna work, right? But that validation that's happening on the browser is com it's impossible to enforce. Like I could always go in and like hack the JavaScript on any website I want on the browser side to let me make my email be an A. But that's why you have to duplicate it. So on the browser, on the client side, you check just to keep things easy and keep the flow going and make it convenient. But then when you hit the server, you have to check again to make sure that someone isn't trying to be malicious, right? Or have a broken browser or something. And so if you're gonna be checking twice, it'd be pretty cool if you could reuse the same code that does the checking, right? And so Node.js gives you that. So you write the validation code in JavaScript once and then you can use it on the client and on the server. And you know it's gonna work exactly the same. Like you're not gonna type some email address that the browser thinks is okay, but then the server doesn't think is okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, so especially for validation, but also for other reasons, um, Node.js is, uh, is pretty awesome, especially for a front end. It also has some great MVC frameworks. That's model view controller frameworks. I personally prefer express. I think express is pretty awesome. There's also a bunch of other ones, but basically what these, th these do is they just make your life easier. Uh, if you want to get a website up and running quickly, um, you need things like templating, um, you need to uh, compile your CSS. Um, you, you need to have a model, right? So you need to connect it to a database and express, you know, handle login authentication. Express does all of these things for you and it, it just makes it super easy.
another pro is that um, all the blocking calls in Node.js aren't really allowed, that would normally be blocking, aren't really allowed to block. They are handled with a callback. And so this keeps your code um, able to scale a little bit better. Um, mm-hmm. So normally, you know, what the way we work is like if you have a server and a request comes in to initiate a connection, you would spawn a thread to service that connection during the life of that connection. But this is fraught with all sorts of resource problems um, and the number of simultaneous requests you can handle. Versus in Node, Node.js, the concept is that um, when that request comes in and you do some work and then you're waiting, for instance, for a response, instead of having a thread there, it goes and does something else. And when uh, the server itself, the Node.js framework, understands that the response has come in, it'll kind of call the callback you registered and then stuff can progress. And that way it can juggle a lot more simultaneous things happening at once. Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, yeah, some of the cons, um, it's weakly typed. So you, know, you could push you could push bad code, right? I mean, unless you're doing your own sort of type checking um, with some kind of other library, like unless you're using TypeScript or something like that, which we talked about in another episode. But uh, well, you, some people would say this is a pro. Really? Uh, I, I, I mean, this is a JavaScript thing, right? Like a lot of people, I don't say so, really like it, but I mean, there's always this thing that, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so, so to Patrick's point, right? The whole like being able to go from the JSON string to the to the object and back only exists because it's weakly typed, and we called that a pro. <laughs> so, so like one of the pros that we even mentioned wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for this con, right? But at the end of the day, like uh, you can get burned by this, right? So uh, it's like anything. There's no there's no silver bullet. Uh, we wouldn't be on our forty one forty first episode. <laughs> 41. That's English. our second mistake ever. English. We wouldn't be on our fir- 41st episode if, uh, if if there was just one language as a silver bullet, right? But I mean, but, something, um, it's free for something. To, it's fine for something to be a pro and a con, but yeah. Yeah, right. But being weakly typed, I mean, I've definitely gotten burned by it. Um, and one other thing about Node.js in particular, and I don't know why, I think actually you can configure it to be differently, to, to be different, but by default, if... If any of your web service requests crash, the entire server crashes and is just gone. So in other words, like if you have what's called a query of death, which means there is some particular use case that can cause you know your server to crash. Like for example, um, let's say you divide by the number of characters that someone put in an input box and someone puts it empty and you don't check for empty. And so when they hit submit, if they didn't fill in a box, under those conditions, um, you divide by zero and bomb out, right? Um, in Node.js, if you do that, like if you have a million people hitting your website and one person does that, it it kills the website for everybody. Um, so it's kind of got this, this thing where it's, it's weakly typed, it's easy to get kind of runtime errors, and when you do, they're totally catastrophic. Um, I do think there's there are ways to fix it, um, such that you know if it bombs out, it's only for that for that session. Um, that's kind of like how Java and some of these other servers work. But by default, it doesn't do that, and so that's one thing to be uh, aware of. So we also said that a pro was the asynchronous nature and how that sometimes can help performance. But now we're gonna have two cons in a row that talk about some of the possible problems with it. And the first mm-hmm. is that uh, you can end up. It, with just crazy amounts of callbacks nested inside of each other because every time you want to try to do something that would be blocking, you need to come up with a callback. And unless you're disciplined as a programmer, uh, you can end up with just code that is a nightmare to read and follow and and trace and see where problems are occurring. Uh, And you have to be really diligent to avoid that. Yeah, and I mean, in some languages, like Java, for example, like most things are synchronous, but then you can do things asynchronously. Like in Java, for example, you know you could have a class that implements runnable, and you could just call the dot run function and synchronously run that class, or you could spin off a thread or assign it to a thread pool, and then it'll run asynchronously, right? But here it's fixed, so that's why, like, if you look at the Node.js API, there's read file 
read file synchronous, you know, uh, there's a bunch of these, like for almost any function, there's a synchronous version of it. And that's because there's no way in the language for you to handle both cases without duplicating all of your code. And so what ends up happening is most people just write the asynchronous version of everything. And uh, then you end up with just every single function has a callback and it, it gets pretty ugly. Yeah, because, you know, most of the time it can be really thin. And so it ends up being, uh, oh, man, why is the name escaping me? Uh, uh, anonymous um, callback, which is also very difficult. So it's just kind of like right yep. there in line. Yeah, right, right. Um, another con is performance. Um, it's So it's interpreted. You know, as you guys know, interpreted languages are naturally kind of slower. So <clears throat> you're not going to use this for doing some heavy image processing and things like that. Um, it does have a lot of great support for libraries like Image Magic and things like that. It has a lot of uh, C and C++ libraries that it wraps that you'd use for something like that. Um, but by default, you know, you're not going to do anything with, you know, that does any signal processing or anything like that in Node. Um, it's also single-threaded, which is kind of wild, right? Like you'd build a server where it only runs on one thread. Um, but uh, as Patrick said, because of this asynchronous nature, it's just that one thread is busy all the time. Whereas in other languages, that thread might be just blocked on disk IO or it's blocked on waiting for a network packet or something like that. But in Node, everything is so asynchronous that that thread is always doing something useful. Like if, it's, if you're reading from a file, then there's some callback that gets fired when it's done. And in the meantime, something else is happening. So. so yeah, that's Node.js. I'm a big fan. I think it's awesome. Um, I think if you want to get a website up and running quickly, this is the way to do it. Um, but it has a lot of great frameworks and things like that too for building professional, professional stuff. So I do think um, if you want to do something more sophisticated, like write some kind of game server or something, you could still use this but then this Node.js would be kind of your front end. It's like you'd have your browser, you'd have Node.js that talks directly to the browser, and then it would write information to a database. Then you'd have some other program in Java or something that's you know maybe polling that database and then doing the more like heavy duty work, right? Like I don't think you would want to write some very complicated um, you know, project in this. This is mainly meant to be pretty lightweight. So, although I think people do write complicated things, like uh, Uber, I believe, uh, writes their view that shows like where all the Uber cabs are in a given city. They track out using Node.js. Oh yeah, that makes sense. So for things like if it's complicated in the sense like it's a lot of data and things like that, Node.js works well. But like for example, like the routing, like routing the cars, I'm pretty sure. That Uber uh, has something in, in C++ or I just remember hearing anecdotally one time talking about like large users of Node.js. Yeah, right. You, you can definitely scale Node.js very well. So I did talk about the single threaded, but um, of course you can have multiple processes, right? So you can have, instead of one Node.js server per machine, you could have a thousand per machine, or you could have the number of threads times two per machine. And then you're 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 maxing out you know that machine just as you would with a single java server right um so yeah you could definitely scale it up but uh with the weekly typed and other things you know you definitely wouldn't want to do machine learning or something like that in node.js it'd kind of be a nightmare all right well i think that's a wrap for node.js yeah um check it out it's really awesome uh, you know a lot of people say how do i get started in programming and there's basically two pieces of two assembly. paths you can go like one assembly <laughs> brutal one is like most people want either make a game in which case you could get started with you know all the things we talked about on the game engines episode or make a website and if you're of the latter kind and you want to make a website uh, i definitely recommend using this it's pretty slick html cool. blink tags for the um, <laughs> oh god! Yeah, and yeah, everything should be blinking. Everything, everything, the entire document, always, always. Um, 
So yeah, this is pretty cool. So well, a couple of things to mention. One, uh, in the past like four or five months, the bandwidth has doubled, which is pretty awesome. It means that uh, there's a lot of people following. Uh, oh, that's why we're podcast. concerned about net neutrality. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're the beneficiary of net neutrality. Uh, yeah, we're using, I don't remember what the number is, like three terabytes or something, like two and a half terabytes. We're using like a ton of bandwidth per month. But it's great because it's a it's a service that a lot of people are taking advantage of, and uh, and so we appreciate you guys. So there are a lot of new listeners listen. out there, but they may be listening to old episodes. But if you're listening to the new episodes, welcome. That's right, and yeah, you made I mean, it all the way through your you, first one. Welcome. By the time you hear this, you're already a veteran, and it's wasted. It's sort of like a paradox. But uh, um, you know, if if uh, if you are listening to the first time and you get to this episode, or you're going backwards or something. Um, you know, we have the Facebook uh, page for Programming Throwdown. We have the Google Plus page. Uh, sorry, the Google Plus community. Um, we're on Twitter. We have the Neural Nets for Life Twitter uh, 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 handle. And so, uh, you know, stay in touch with us. Communicate with us. Um, we definitely, if we, if we get some user mail. Someone asked me about unit tests. So my tool of the show, not coincidentally, was a as a unit test uh, tool. So if you have any feedback or anything like that, anything you want to uh, to ask, don't hesitate to ping us on those forums or send us an email. That, w- that was very well said. You've, you've done this 41 times. You're a pro. <laughs> <laughs> All right, till next right. time. Cool, see you guys later. The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.